Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Today's bonus episode of Life on the Line is with John Moore. John was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Army Reserves, an ABC commentator for the Sydney Anzac Day Parade, and was the MC of Sydney's Martin Place Dawn Service for 12 years, the fourth man in all its history to hold that position. This is my conversation with John for Life on the Line. Enjoy. Welcome to Life on the Line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm joined today by John Moore. Thanks for coming on the podcast, John. Delighted to be here. Now, John, you were very young when World War II broke out, but you still felt compelled to jump in a uniform. Yeah, a bit of patriotism, I suppose, uh, Alex. Uh, my father was serving away with the RAAF and at the latter stages of the war operating out of the Southwest Pacific, of course. And I felt imbued to uh, repeat his experience. And so I joined the Australian Air League, an organisation, a youth organisation, still functioning these days. I suppose I was only five or six at that stage, but that was my first experience in uniform, my first exposure to drill, my first exposure to things military, like aircraft identification and communications. But I loved it and no one was more proud when my father came home from leave and he and his squadron leader's uniform take me by the hand and I took him to an air league parade. He was probably about 26 when the war broke out and a bit older than most of the other volunteers but he stayed on duty right through the war and I think he was discharged in about 1946, a year after the war finished. They had tasks of flying back Australian prisoners of war from overseas and so on. And John, what was your next experience in uniform? Well, it was the school cadets and I remember my introduction. I went to an independent boys' school. They had a well-established cadet corps, was then called arguably the oldest in the country. And I suddenly found out that I had a compulsory four years in the cadet corps ahead of me. So I asked my father to please write a note, say I had two heads or one arm or something, anything to get out of it. My father said, no, you will do your cadet service. And over the four years, I became imbued and interested in military service. And the cadets in those days a little different than they are now. They were totally military. They really are. These days, they're a bit more like adventure training in uniform. Still got a leadership value, a very good one, as a matter of fact, but in our days, it was weapon training and tactics and field craft. I loved it. I thought it was great. That led to another step, Alex. I, because of my interest engendered in the cadets, I always thought that perhaps a career in the army might uh, be good. And this was imbued a little further by uh, the fact that our combined rugby team each year played Royal Military College Duntroon and I developed an interest that way but after school it wasn't to be. My uh, life took me along the agriculture trend and I graduated in agriculture, I jackarooed and then went into radio and television as a specialist rural communicator. 
The years go by and you had full-time employment with the ABC, as you just said. But when the conflict in Vietnam arises, you find yourself back in uniform. Yeah, very much so. I was quite concerned at this stage with the trend in international affairs. To me, they didn't look good. We had a commitment in Vietnam. And I decided it was time that I really went back to those early roots I had of being interested in the army. So I joined up. I thought it was my duty to actually receive some training and be prepared in case it was necessary. Now, one of the interesting aspects of this, of course, is that this is during the compulsory national service training program. And I was 25, 26, and all my fellow recruits were all 17, 18, 19. So I was uh, five or six years older than all of them. But that in itself was a very good experience. It obviously clicked with you because you stayed in the CMF as it transitioned to the Army Reserves. I liked the service. I found my normal employment responsibilities perhaps prevented me from spending as much time training and qualifying for different rank than I would have uh, preferred. But That's a fact of life. I uh, balanced the two and I thought balanced it fairly well. I certainly enjoyed it. Balance is, I think, a bit of a humble understatement there, John, because you rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Yes, I did. And perhaps given two areas, one might have gone a bit further. One was time. I joined later than the average and uh, my time of retirement occurred. And secondly, I think that because I uh, really didn't consider I had the time to devote fully to the army. I didn't accept any real command situations. So my uh, career went to Lieutenant Colonel, for which I'm very, very pleased and proud of. And your work with the ABC led you to doing the ABC broadcasts eventually of the Anzac Day Parade. How did that start? Well, it was an interesting uh, day. I was sitting in my office one day and I had a phone call from the general manager. We got on very well because we wore the same old school tie. So unofficially, we're on first name terms. And he said, John, I hear you're a lieutenant in the CMF, as it then was. I said, yes, Tal, that's uh, true. And he said, good. You're now a member of the ABC commentary team. You're assisting Martin Royal and Ian McFarland on the commentary next week for the Anzac Day March. And that was my introduction. And that was about the mid-60s. And here I am in 2017, still doing Anzac Day March commentaries. And you did that year after year after year after year? Yes, I did have a small break because... uh, My work commitments took me to Canberra. I assisted the local ABC studios down there with some coverage, mainly radio, of the Anzac Day March. But then I came back to Sydney and took over as the lead commentator because the ABC at the time had a problem with their commentary team and I was recruited back into the fold and been there ever since. In 2006, you became the fourth man in history to emcee the dawn service in Sydney's Martin Place. How did that come about? The master of ceremonies at that time was a chap named Leon Becker. Now, I knew Leon from my radio and television days. Leon was originally with Macquarie Broadcasting and later with Artranza and Film Australia. But I met Leon uh, at an Anzac Day march. In fact, it was my first one. And those days, we'd climb up this rickety ladder up onto the uh, the awning of Beberfalls, the exclusive uh, furniture shop in Sydney, now called Woolworths, right opposite the town hall. Interesting fact then, Alex, 
every media electronic media organization in Sydney was there. Now, Leon was there doing the Macquarie radio broadcasts, and I first met him there. And we had a friendship which went over the years. And he was the compere of the Dawn service prior to me. This carried on a long tradition of Macquarie or Radio 2GB having a real finger in the pie. The three commentators prior to that had all come from Macquarie Broadcasting. I received a phone call one day from the what was the Dawn Service Trust? We've got a problem, they said. The compere has an accident, been in an accident, he's not well, he can't do the job. And it was only a week beforehand. So I said, right, I'll fill in. And uh, I've been filling in ever since. Longest term substitute ever. <laughs> Just about, I think, yes. Now, before we go any further with your involvement in the Dawn Service, John, I'd like to take a step back and talk about the wider history of the Dawn Service. How did it start? Well, it depends where you talk about. Every little hamlet in Australia, every state claims to be the first. I think the first thing to say is that the Dawn Service is traditionally an Australian innovation. It's an Australian tradition. It's certainly spread to some other parts of the world now, but it's an innovation of commemoration, which times from the dawn landing on the beaches of Gallipoli. And that's how it in fact started. It would be very difficult to say which is the oldest because when you look round at the history, every regional area, every little town had a service. I can look back, there's records, for example, in Toowoomba, 1919, of a very uncoordinated, informal ceremony and playing the last post. I could look at Western Australia, where in the early 20s, a padre from the first AIF got a group of his soldiers together. They said a few words through a reef in the water in King George's Sound. That's where the troop ships, the convoys, left Australia to go to Gallipoli. It was probably the growth of all these integrated services right across the country, which gradually combined to give the dawn service as we now know it in Australia. And essentially, I suppose it's fair to say that most of these dawn services, small or large, adopt a very, very similar format. It's the protocol of the day, varied to suit local circumstances, but the format is very similar. There's a legend about the Martin Place Dawn Service in particular. Can you tell us that story, John? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. This happened 90 years ago from this year, 2017, the 90th anniversary this year. The details are recorded, even down to the names. The cenotaph was under construction. There had been a, uh, a meeting of uh, an ex-service organisation there at a place called Blue Tea Room, a little further along Martin Place. They... Um, finished the meeting and in the early hours of the morning five of these members came outside and the first thing they noticed was this elderly lady at the partly constructed cenotaph laying a bunch of flowers and they stayed to watch and while they watched she stumbled and they moved in very quickly to assist which they did so and they stayed while she actually laid the flowers she said a prayer and they joined in the prayer and that's the beginning of the dawn service at the cenotaph in martin place and it's expanded since then advanced in sophistication in participation and so on to the major service that we have today it evolved quite a lot in the late 20s and early 30s in formalities and involvement of the church and the state and so on yeah very much so a chaplain was invited to participate in the late 
mid-20s Radio 2GB, Macquarie Broadcasting, actually uh, broadcast the service in 1931 and uh, they provided the Master of Ceremonies for that occasion and that Master of Ceremonies remained for many, many years after. But uh, other developments, um, there was government participation, there was formal defence participation with soldiers in uniform, originally only the army, but then all services took it on rotation to be involved. There were bands and the ceremony became extremely formal, extremely structured and very impressive. How did World War II affect the service? I imagine the conflict would have brought the nation together even more strongly in remembrance. Yeah, very much so. The service continued during World War II and it had a little more focus in many ways during the war years in that Martin Place... And it was called Martin Place. That Did you know it was once called Moore Street? I did not, but yeah, how fitting. Named after a forefather of mine who was mayor of Sydney prior to Lord Mayor's. Wow. Um, but Martin Place, as it then was, became a focal point in World War Two, There was recruiting depots there. It was a place where rallies were held. And this echoed the situation in World War One as well. So it was a, a major centre of the city for these activities during the war. And the dawn service continued. Technology has enhanced the service as well, particularly in recent years. Very much so. Uh, For example, uh, it is now televised by one of the commercial television stations. And that's a recently new innovation. The Macquarie Broadcasting Organisation carries the complete broadcast. And in more recent years, the ABC Radio Network has also joined the broadcast. So that means on radio alone, Alex, it going to an extraordinary wide audience in Australia and in fact in overseas. And I get phone calls from people people, mainly expats who are living in Indonesia or the USA, and they'll ring back and say, we heard you with the dawn service on Anzac Day. So it gets an extremely wide coverage. I think it's one of those features which will continue. As an observation, I've got no research on this, there is no doubt in my mind that interest in commemorative activities, interest in war memorials, interest in The Anzac Day March has increased enormously in recent years for a whole range of social reasons, I believe, or social attitudes, and uh, that will continue. Beyond the wonderful contribution to broadcasting, technologies also affected the presentation itself. An example being the March On of the Anzacs is now done through an audio representative of their footsteps. Well, a lot of all our services are symbolic. The point you raised there, Alex, is very true. The sound effect footsteps are symbolic. They're symbolic of the original Anzacs. When they were all alive, they would formally march on to the service. And it was a feature of the commemorative service at that time. The Anzacs are no longer with us, but they are in spirit and they are symbolically. Hence, the uh, sound effects of the marching feet is there. The symbolism is also further. When the original Dawn Service Trust was formed, it was formed by various sub-branches of what was then the uh, the legion of ex-servicemen. Some of those sub-branches are now disappeared and they would march on with the Anzacs. These days we have school cadets carrying on one banner, one banner, symbolising all those sub-branches of the Legion of Ex-Servicemen who used to be there in past years. And today we observe a service of respect 
dignity, diversity, some new technology, but rightly so, also steeped in tradition. Yeah, the traditions are very interesting, Alex, apart from the fact that the dawn aspect is, as we said earlier, an Australian innovation and Australian tradition now adopted a little widely. However, it's fair to say that the format is also tradition, tradition from countries with a British heritage. Most of them stem from a long time ago, many of them from the first Remembrance Day service, then called Armistice Day, held at what was the newly constructed Cenotaph in London. A format was developed there, which generally speaking is adopted now throughout the British Commonwealth and in Australia. Now, even that first Armistice Day service in 19 had an Australian innovation. It's not recognised that the period of silence comes from a suggestion by an Australian. In 1919, there was an Australian journalist named Edward Honey working in London, and he wrote to the government suggesting that for this new service, we should have a period of reflective silence, and his suggestion was adopted. Two minutes was incorporated. It is now more generally one minute by a decree of the Australian Governor-General some years ago, but That's part of the Australian tradition. The rest are part of our heritage, whether it's the hymns that are sung, the singing of the Australian national hymn, whether it's the recitation of the ode. They're all part of our tradition. How well do you think Australians match up to their knowledge of these traditions and the history compared to, say, the UK? It's improving, but it's not very good. I have found from years and years of comparing ceremonial events two things. Australians really don't know what to do and when to do it. So as Master of Ceremonies, I've always adopted a process in my commentary to advise the spectators, the audience, what to do. It might be as simple as please stand for the singing of a hymn or it might be please be seated. As a comparison in my experience of working in, in Britain, the Brits seem to know very well their traditions and the background. Possibly I'm probably putting myself out on a, a limb here, but Britain have a long tradition of a service at arms. We don't have that same tradition. We've had voluntary service in many wars. We have a regular army these days, but it's not a general community trait. It is in Britain. A profession of arms is the term. However, and I find that most Australians, because of this, don't understand the derivation of our service, why we do things or why they are symbolic. And I find it both useful to do it and from the comments that I receive regularly back, it's enlightening for the people. They are interested. They didn't know until they were told why we do X or Y in the service. And uh, they do appreciate being advised. It's history after all. I think it's interesting because such a big part of the national conversation is the growing interest and participation in these commemorative services and days. And I suppose now the knowledge is finally catching up. I think that's a fair statement. But also there's another aspect that Australians overlook. And again, professional historians might argue, I have suggested over the years, the history of Australia is really the history of a nation at war. There has been very few periods of time when Australia hasn't had some formal commitment 
a defence commitment overseas. This tradition starts from uh, the New Zealand wars where we had formal and voluntary commitments in the Sudan campaign to the Boer War, the Boxer Rebellion, World War One or Two, World War Two, then all the Korea, the Malayan emergency uh, infiltration uh, in uh, Indonesia and right through up until the current time. And I would suggest... Uh, and I have suggested in my commentaries that we are looking at a country where our history aligns ourselves with our commitment overseas, a defence commitment overseas. How was it emceeing the service through the centenary years, by which I do include 14, 16 and 17, but in particular, of course, the centenary year? Very interesting period. Uh, there's probably several centenaries we've got to talk about. Obviously, Gallipoli, Anzac, uh, that had its centenary in 2015. But the Australian government logically saw that the period of 2014 through to 2018 was going to be the centenary of every feature of World War One. So we've got centenaries coming up all through that period. Gallipoli was one, but there are many others yet to come. Perhaps the most significant will be not only 2018, which is the centenary of the signing of the armistice, but it's also the centenary of the Battle of Villas Bretano. This was a battle which probably was the beginning of the end for the German army. It was a battle under command, planned by and under command of Australians, who actually went against the instructions of the British commander-in-chief, and they succeeded. And it is the battle which I think turned the end. It caused the resignation of the German commander-in-chief. And then, of course, we had General Monash in the latter stages coming on, providing a new aspect of warfare altogether. And that raises another issue of World War One, of which we in Australia can take pride. We always talk about the disaster of Gallipoli. We very rarely talk about the withdrawal of forces from Gallipoli. The only success of that campaign. No yeah, casualties. It was, and again, done against the vice of the British generals. It was organised by an Australian, planned by an Australian, not only to extract Australian and New Zealand forces at the Gallipoli Peninsula, but round the corner, shall we say, at the Dardanelles. British, French, Indians and Canadians and Nova Scotia, which was an independent country at the time. And they extracted 80,000 troops over three nights with all their associated equipment and their mules and their horses and the enemy of the day, the Turks, didn't know they were gone. It's deemed now to be the basis of modern planning for a withdrawal. Military officers still use it as a model. The principles developed are still the same these days. Technology has made some change, of course, but the principles haven't changed. You don't need to rig up a water can next to a rifle to drip feed it and pretend to fire and that kind of thing with modern technology. But yeah, the logistics... there was some of the... Uh, diversion tactics, uh, mm. like playing cricket on the beach so that the Turks would think was everything normal. Having supplies brought ashore, as is usual, with boxes and drums and whatnot, all coming ashore, but they're all empty. Looking at a century later, because you are hosting the Dawn Service from 2006, how did the, say, the late noughties compare to those centenary years? Obviously crowd size, but how else did the nature of the service and the atmosphere and the cultural significance changed during your tenure? It has changed, and it's changed according to uh, some comments we made a little earlier. There have been 
I think, significant social change. Now, if I go back to the, let's say, the days when we were, had a defence commitment in Vietnam, very controversial, as you know, and uh, our uh, numbers were right down. Teachers saw these services as a glorification of war when it wasn't. It was an honour of those who'd served the nation and didn't return. So you didn't get any participation. Kids were discouraged from coming. People were put off because you never knew if there was going to be a riot or so on. That's changed. And numbers are on the increase. People are now starting to respect what servicemen have done for the country. And they've got to think they often went, not only a volunteer, but under conscription. And they did what the government ordered them to do. That's just a fact of life. And I think this service is now being appreciated. A couple of interesting things uh, reflect upon this change, and that is, look at the national government support for activities at the Australian War Memorial. It's now arguably, and I have to support from what I've seen, the best such institution in the world. Look what's happening at the War Memorial in Hyde Park here in Sydney. $40 million currently being spent to bring it up to scratch, to enlarge the facilities, education and otherwise, and there will be a formal opening on the centenary of the signing of the armistice. And that's an official recognition of what we owe these men and women who've served Australia. So, John, your first time as MC was, as I've said, 2006, and you held that role until 2017, your 12th and final year. And you're retiring, you're leaving us. Well, uh, I'm uh, not getting any younger, Alex, and I've been suggesting for some time that there should be a, a succession plan. And I think that message has now got home. Who it's going to be, we're waiting to see. I've been asked to make some recommendations, which I'm in the process of doing, but it will be the choice of the Dawn Service Trust, with some support from the New South Wales government, because um, the Dawn Service has now grown to such an extent, and it's such a significant occasion in Sydney, that it would be impossible for a voluntary organisation like the Dawn Service Trust to run it by themselves with very few resources. The New South Wales government contributes a lot of support both financial, administrative and technically. I think it was also a measure of how important the Dawn service is considered in New South Wales at official government levels. Well, John, it's sad to see you go, but what are you doing with yourself these days? I keep out of mischief. I am uh, secretary of a RSL sub-branch, a small one, but that keeps me busy. I'm the vice president of a, uh, a city-based club. That keeps me also busy. But in addition to commitments such as the um, the Dawn Service, I assist with a lot of other smaller ceremonies, even this year. In fact, I've got another one yet to come this weekend. So there is plenty to do to keep me out of business. And out of trouble. Out of trouble, yes. Mind you, Alex, sometimes uh, trouble might be preferable, but <laughs> I'm getting a little beyond it. Well, John, I'm going to miss having your voice guide us through the early hours on the morning of Anzac Day 2018, and I'm sure many others will as well. Thank you for all your service over the years. I'm delighted to be able to assist uh, Alex, and in fact, if a final comment, it came as a complete surprise to me, but three years ago I was included in the uh, Honours Award for the Order of Australia, and I was granted an AM, and it was essentially for my support 
of ceremonial and commemorative activities, as well as sporting commentary, particularly rowing, rugby and polo, believe it or not. From my point of view, uh, it surprised me. I appreciated it, but I would have done it anyway. Well, we're all very grateful and congratulations. And I look forward to next year when they rename it More Place once again. (laughs) Thanks for speaking with me today, John. That was my conversation with John Moore. If you're just discovering us, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. We have an interview with an Australian war veteran out every Tuesday, and we have bonus episodes like this one with John out most Fridays. So subscribe to get all content. To help other people discover the show, you can spread the word and post about us on your social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. And do check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.